I think conservatism, in a sense, is neither of the left or of the right, and that there are conservative critiques of the right that need to be made, just as there are conservative critiques of the left. Conservatism is against revolutionary efforts that would mm -hmm. try to undermine the foundations of society and uh, replace them with ideological schemes. That's Daniel McCarthy, editor of the American Conservative, talking about his magazine's specific brand of traditionalist conservatism. Today we hear from Dan about the American Conservative, how he thinks it differs from the mainstream right, and what he thinks it has to say to folks on both sides of the aisle. You're listening to Common Ground, a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. In 2002, a small group of writers and politicians on the right, including Reagan's former senior advisor, Pat Buchanan, founded a magazine called The American Conservative. Established in opposition to the Iraq War, the magazine would feature the writing of traditionalist or paleoconservatives, that is, thinkers on the right who, unlike the so-called conservative establishment, generally detest military adventurism abroad and think that American culture has sadly neglected its roots in the cultural and religious tradition of the West. Though not as widely circulated as mainstream conservative publications such as National Review, the American conservative has a loyal following on the right and is known, in the words of conservative commentator Rehan Salam, as a, quote, sharp critic of the conservative mainstream. In this interview, I asked Dan McCarthy about his magazine's role as a critic of the mainstream right, as well as what he thinks of the current fracture of the Republican Party. All that's coming up in this episode of Common Ground. First, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. So the, the mission statement of your publication, The American Conservative, describes your brand of conservatism as one of, quote, ideas over ideology and principles over party. What do you mean by that, and who or what are you really def defining yourself against? Well, I think everyone in politics, and this applies to the right as much as to the left, is susceptible to groupthink. Mm. And they're susceptible to doing things uh, because they're convenient, taking positions because uh, your allies take them, as opposed to because you've actually critically examined them yourself and you've come to the conclusion that the position reflects your own philosophy, your own uh, understanding of humanity. So uh, part of what the American conservative is about is stepping away from partisan politics and also stepping away from what becomes kind of an echo of partisan politics uh, in the conservative movement. Mm -hmm. We want to be independent of most of that. And our independence began uh, back uh, in 2002 when the magazine was launched because we had a view of foreign policy that was very different from the prevailing one within the conservative movement as well as within the, the Bush administration. And having uh, asserted our independence on something as big as foreign policy, especially mm -hmm. back in 2002, which is you know, a year after 9-11 and a, year, you know, a few months before the start of the Iraq War, uh, having asserted independence on that issue so early, we then were able, I think, to continue to assert independence on other issues and to start you know, critically examining economics, uh, philosophy, and uh, the mistakes that the right makes as well as the left. And I think conservatism, in a sense, is neither of the left or of the right, and that there are conservative critiques of the right that need to be made just as there are conservative critiques of the left. Conservatism is against revolutionary efforts that would mm -hmm. try to undermine the foundations of society and uh, replace them with ideological schemes. So that's the thing that uh, the American conservative is against. Well, so as, as you say, if yours is an independent form of conservatism, that is a conservatism that's outside the movement, what has that meant for your publication's editorial stances in the last, say, 10 years? Have you served as sort of gadflies of the conservative establishment, as it's been called? Well, you know, uh, it started out that way, but it very quickly became something else. Uh, we were saying things that a lot of people within uh, the conservative movement agreed with and believed in, but couldn't say because... Mm -hmm. 
They would be uh, untrue to the uh, leadership structure of their organizations, perhaps. They might face uh, professional difficulties. This was especially true, you know, a decade ago with uh, the, the uh, foreign policy situation. So we were ahead of the curve in terms of uh, criticizing uh, things that were going on in the Bush administration, not only on foreign policy, but also when it came to immigration, when it came to the expansion of uh, Medicare and a few other things. Uh, and that won us a lot of credibility with people who at the time were reluctant to speak out and criticize. He was a very popular president for a few years, uh, but who subsequently realized that, you know, if they had spoken out at the time, they would have uh, been seen as prescient. So let's talk a bit about definitions, because the American conservative has been called paleoconservative. It's also been called traditionalist and Burkean. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting. I was talking the other day with E.J. Dion, who praised, uh, who's, uh, who's of course on the left, and praised quote, Burkean conservatism as an alternative to hard-right conservatism. In fact, it seems plenty of people on the left like the idea of Burkean conservatism. I'm kind of wondering, is, is your Edmund Burke the same Burke as E.J. Dion's? Um, do you think that this Burkean conservatism is the sort of conservatism of moderation? How do you conceive of it? It is a conservatism of moderation, and it's a conservatism uh, connected with... Uh, Anglo-American constitutionalism, not only in a, a kind of formal, semi-legal sense, but also in a sense of understanding the constitution of society, how your culture has evolved over time. That said, uh, you're quite right. Burkean, uh, the term Burkean, Ed Edmund Burke himself, uh, these are protean. They're something that mm -hmm. uh, get taken up by various, uh, you know, people who represent different uh, factions and ideas and get appropriated for them. And Burke himself, uh, because he's you know operating at a uh, a level of very sort a very expansive level for a, for an office holder for a member of parliament, it's easy for people to say, well, okay, we can take derive these general principles from his rhetorical stances, and we can then uh, you know channel these principles into particular policies, right. and they can do that uh, in a kind of Rorschachian way, right? They can see what they want to see there, and they can derive what they want to derive. Now, that's a flaw on the one hand because it can lead to inconsistency. It can lead to E.J. Dionne's Burke perhaps being very different from my okay. Edmund Burke, which may perhaps be different from you know Irving Kristol's Edmund Burke or something like that. Um, but there's also an advantage in that as well, because I think the fact that Burke can't be pinned down so easily is part of the, the indication of his genius, that there really are dimensions of him which um, are not just a checklist. They don't reduce to some uh, you know, sort of simple uh, done-in-one credo, mm -hmm. that there really is an ethos and there is a way of thinking about uh, conservatism and a way of thinking about politics, and that's what Burke fundamentally represents. And it's trying to engage in that that will lead you to answers which may differ from what other Burkeans uh, conclude. But nevertheless, that process is actually the beginning of a really sound conservatism, as opposed to something that's a very brittle, again, kind of checklist uh, approach and ideology. So how would you define the way you approach Burkean conservatism and the way it sort of informs the work of the American conservative? Well, um, I think there are two dimensions to this. Myself, I come at Burke uh, as uh, almost a sort of... Uh, a proto-libertarian in some senses. He's someone who understands how uh, the traditions that uh, 18th century England had were the foundation for the liberty that 18th century England had. So he is someone who understands that uh, the religious background of his nation, the uh, constitutional background as it had developed over uh, centuries, these provided the foundation for even what liberals and progressives of his time were celebrating. And Edmund Burke himself was a Whig, um, which at the time was uh, such a mainstream position mm -hmm. that it's, it's almost uh, not quite right to contrast that with Tory because, uh, you know, during Burke's uh, period in office, Tory really was 
uh, it, was, it was like the term reactionary. It was something that you, you only self-consciously adopted if you, um, you know, just wanted to be a contrarian. Burke was a mainstream guy. He was not a contrarian. He was someone who really was trying to uh, work within uh, the political center of his country and to keep it free and liberal. Um, and there were pressures that were trying to drive it to become uh, more authoritarian, more centralized. Uh, you know, King George himself uh, had some of those tendencies. The risk of the king and the prime minister, the cabinet, working together and excluding Congress, excluding Parliament rather, um, that was a real danger. Um, a double cabinet was what uh, Edmund Burke called that. And also, as uh, England and Britain had become stronger within the world and had developed an empire, there were dangers to um, the English character, the British character, arising from uh, that practice of dominion. And Burke was, you know, very passionate about justice, uh, you know, concerning the Americans, concerning the Irish, concerning the Indians. So that is, that's the Burke that I embrace. It's the one who is a conservative, who understands that conservatism is the preservation of the very foundations of our civilization, but who isn't a, an authoritarian or reactionary. He really does see that uh, those foundations are what make possible um, the degree of freedom and individualism that we okay. have today. So in your critique of the conservative establishment, or even in 2002 of the Iraq War, you found, a, in this sense, a good deal of perhaps common ground with people on the left in terms of your critique, you could also find some common ground with them in terms of appreciating Burke as someone to be, at least some people on the left, as someone to be admired. Do you see going forward in the current political situation uh, some possibility of coalition of paleoconservatives or Burkean conservatives and some people on the left? Oh, absolutely. I do think there is some common ground between um, conservative Burkeans, mm -hmm. you know, right Burkeans, if you want to call them that, and uh, people on the left, progressives, liberals, however mm -hmm. they might define themselves, who do respect and understand Edmund Burke. And, uh, you know, I mean, I might criticize them and say that their understanding is not quite full or correct, um, but the appreciation they have for Burke is a, a bridge and is something that allows um, cooperation. I'll give you two examples right fast. Uh, David Bromwich, for example, mm -hmm. is someone who really um, has, uh, both as a scholar and is also as uh, a person who is somewhat on the left, but who really understands what Burke is trying to do, um, who has that uh, common ground with us. And uh, Bromwich, as a result, has been very consistent in criticizing President Obama and uh, Hillary Clinton in terms of their foreign mm -hmm. policy, which he sees as very un-Burkean indeed. Um, so there are people like that. Uh, there are people like Carl Bogus, who recently wrote a book about um, William F. Buckley that had a very Burkean element to it. And he's also someone who's um, somewhat progressive, but who understands the value of Burkean conservatism. So there is uh, that common ground. There is also, on the other hand, um, you know, there are people both on the right and on the left who appropriate Burke for things that are just not appropriate and that don't really, um, they may, uh, you know, share a nominal connection, but mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the substance, in terms of a good faith attempt to understand uh, what Burke was doing, uh, it may be absent. And, you know, over the years, especially as, uh, you know, the, the foreign policy um, climate of the, uh, the original Iraq war and the beginning of the American conservative, as that has changed to something else with uh, Barack Obama and uh, with other issues becoming very prominent, it's become more and more clear just how far you know, many people on the left are from even supporting you know, sure. our ideas on foreign policy, let alone sure. you know, more substantial Burkean ideas. So uh, since we're talking about moving forward in the future, uh, I'll just ask flat out, what, what's your take on this sort of Trump revolt that you're seeing right now? And how do you feel about it? Uh, it's creative destruction. So um, conservative, the conservative movement uh, for a long time has, I think, neglected the plight of um, you know, sort of uh, middle America, the plight of uh, our manufacturing sector in particular. Uh, there's been an economic critique, which um, you know Pat Buchanan and others have made for many uh, years now, 
which um, tended to be treated just as unthinkable heresy on the right. And Buchanan was, uh, for a long time, as controversial for his economic positions as he was for his uh, foreign policy positions. And it's not necessarily the case that uh, protectionists are correct, um, but rather they are flagging up a problem that conservatives really need to address, mm -hmm. um, no matter how uh, dedicated they may be to free market economics. And um, so that, I think, is, is the, the element within the Trump uh, phenomenon that is salutary, that it's drawing attention to a number of uh, problems that con the conservative movement has neglected for too long. Uh, the less salutary element, of course, is that we just don't know what Trump is actually sure. uh, heading for in terms of his policy outcomes. Uh, you know, he's a very vulgar individual. He's an individual who doesn't care about the civility within society. Uh, that's true, you know, when it's, uh, w whether he's speaking about women. It's true whether it's, you know, uh, with regard to violence happening at his uh, rallies. And there's a very, very dangerous thing there. And I think some of my own friends may be underestimating uh, you know, first of all, they realize that it's, it's very bad in principle, but they might want to overlook it because they think at least the policies may be moving in the direction we want. But there's a great danger that other people within um, uh, American politics are going to start taking lessons from Trump. Right. So uh, getting neoconservatives who behave in a Trumpian fashion mm -hmm. or um, having the social justice left say, well, hey, if, if Trump can do this, then we're going to do this as well. Uh, it sets a very bad precedent across the, the, the line. It just makes me wonder. So if your form of conservatism prizes, you know, the sort of incorporating the best in Western history or the Western tradition, I mean, it, does anything about... Trump strike you as incorporating the best of the, of the Western tradition? No, only in, only in the negative. Only, only in the, the sense okay. that, uh, you know, Trump... It, it's awkward because Trump really does personify uh, the dilemma the right faces with regard to political correctness. Okay. Trump viscerally hates political correctness. I think that's pretty obvious. And the fact that he doesn't ever give it any um, uh, play is uh, significant. But in rejecting political correctness, he also uh, rejects just basic decency, politeness, etc., and that's obviously not what conservatives want to see. Right. So there's always this danger of swinging too far in reaction to something you oppose. So in a, in a recent article you published on Trump, you admit that you were wrong, and you said this before, you were wrong to say that he was just a blip or a novelty candidate. You said that you initially hadn't taken Trump seriously because you had figured that the Republicans would, like in elections past, vote for the obvious establishment candidate. Why didn't that happen this time? Uh, well, first of all, there wasn't an establishment, uh, uh, you know, as much of a strong establishment candidate as there has been in the past. But clearly, that's not really the main story. I mean, someone like uh, Jeb Bush, you know, could conceivably have uh, filled in that blank. No, I think uh, I was, I, I didn't give enough weight to the amount of discontent conservative voters had already registered over the last several years. The fact that Newt Gingrich, for example, won in uh, South Carolina in 2012, that was pretty significant because he was not seen as the establishment's choice. Um, yet, um, you know, South Carolina voters, who had actually been a firewall against Buchanan in the, uh, in the 1990s, they were willing to reject the establishment and kind of uh, support someone who, um, you know, seemed creative uh, in a way that um, uh, I think sort of foreshadowed Trump. And Gingrich's support for Trump uh, over uh, this cycle has been kind of a, uh, you know, an indication of that. And then, uh, you know, if you look at the um, revolt against the House leadership over the last few right. years, the fact that uh, Eric Cantor lost his uh, House seat, or lost his primary, rather, and the fact that, uh, you know, John Boehner just reached a, a, a situation where he could not continue as leader. I mean, even if the um, uh, forces against him weren't quite uh, capable of deposing him directly, they were capable of undermining him to the point where he didn't want to continue. Well, you say in your article that, and this is a general quote, but you, you willful, willfully overlooked 
a lot of the revolt that was happening in the Tea Party since around 2010. So there's Eric Cantor. You listed some other examples. Could you could you recall some of those? Yeah. Uh, again, I think uh, Gingrich's uh, yeah. performance in 2012 in uh, South Carolina. I think uh, the toppling of John Boehner uh, last year. Even the fact that, you know, in places like Delaware, you were having uh, candidates nominated for Senate who were unlikely to win their races, um, that really obviously were not establishment candidates, but the grassroots were very happy to have someone who, you know, uh, the the grassroots had reached a point where they felt as um, alienated from, uh, you know, establishment Republicans as they did from liberal Democrats. And as a result, it just didn't matter to them, even if they lost with a, a candidate they felt more comfortable with, a populist candidate because um, the alternative was a choice between two establishment candidates mm-hmm. who, in their minds, were equal. So what's your perspective then uh, with the related changes on the left? So Clinton is part of the establishment, to be sure, but Sanders has led his revolts of populists. Uh, does democratic socialism have a future in the mainstream, in your view? Yeah, I don't know whether it's going to be called democratic socialism, but there is an upheaval um, that is exactly parallel to the one on mm-hmm. the right. Um, that basically, in the 1990s, uh, you know, the Bushes and the Clintons, uh, the establishment in both parties, embraced um, what the left calls neoliberalism, which was a regime of free trade, generally uh, more open borders, a degree of um, you know, economic freedom which uh, many conservatives thought was very encouraging, uh, but which also seemed to be aimed... Um, well, which which many people on the left also embraced, right. and um, I think that's that's gone out the window. That the the American middle class, both on the left and the right, really does feel very endangered, and it's shrinking. Um, it's shrinking in part for a good reason that there are more people are entering uh, upper income brackets, mm-hmm. and that's that tends to be an underreported story. But I think a lot of middle class people also are really scared of uh, of falling down, and they look at the trajectory of their families, for example, and they see that each generation has done better than the last, mm-hmm. and they look now at what their children are facing with uh, you know college debt, with the uh, you know job market, with uh, mortgages and healthcare costing what they do, and they say it really looks unlikely my children are going to be better off than I was. So they're worried, and they're embracing on the left people like Sanders, and on the right uh, people like Trump. So does the American conservative have a critique of neoliberalism along similar lines as, as does the, the hard left or the Sanders left? Uh, we really do. Uh, you know, it's, it doesn't come to the same policy prescriptions, sure. but we want to recognize the problem just as clearly as they do. There's a difficult uh, choice here that conservatives have to think about. Um, if you look back at the New Deal and you look back at uh, Eisenhower as the first Republican to follow the New Deal, a lot of people on the right were very disappointed in Eisenhower because they saw him as continuing New Deal liberalism, although he didn't really expand it, and certainly not compared to LBJ after him. But um, the rationale for that, and what many conservatives said at the time, was that, well, this welfare state, which we do not like, is the price you pay for having, uh, for, for basically undercutting, uh, you know, socialism and populist uh, revolts, which during the, uh, you know, 1890s and uh, before uh, the uh, uh, before the Great uh, Depression, there had been this uh, sort of pendulum where you would have uh, relatively more free market uh, tendencies within the country, and you would have these grassroots movements, mm-hmm. these populist and uh, progressive movements, that were trying to, uh, you know, challenge it. And uh, there really had been a degree of um, socialist agitation and activism in the U.S. uh, before the New Deal. And the New Deal was in part an attempt uh, to undercut that as well as an attempt to um, introduce new elements of control into the economy. So it was both a, uh, there was a left-wing element to it, but there was also a a certain sort of right-wing element to it. And in fact, if you look at some of the new left authors of the 1960s and 70s, people like uh, uh, Gabriel Kolko, for example, um, they're very critical of um, various kinds of uh, left-wing uh, projects, not just the New Deal, but even before that, um, 
uh, some of the progressives because they said basically what they're doing is reaching a compromise with capitalism. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the idea of returning to the New Deal or returning to the economic uh, conditions of the 1940s to the 1980s is um, unrealistic. We've got a very different situation now. And I think the first step is simply to recognize uh, where we stand and how difficult you know, the situation has become for middle America. So I'm wondering, is, is part of you heartened at all by the fracture of the establishment on both sides? I mean, this is creating a whole new political space. It's, as you said, it's completely changing the political landscape in America, and it potentially could be a situation in which we could start thinking more seriously about um, Burkean conservatism or paleoconservatism. That's right. Um, so for conservatives, risk is always a, uh, a dubious thing, right? right. Um, on the one hand, uh, it's kind of encouraging to see the establishment crumble and to see uh, people like Sanders and Trump uh, raise questions that need to be raised, even if we don't necessarily like the people raising them. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, there's this fear that um, there, there are things that are worse than the establishment. And, uh, you know, having, you know, really militant socialist movements, having, you know, movements that seem to have something, uh, in, populist movements that seem to have something in common with fascism, that would be much worse than simply having more Clinton and Bush um, uh, power. So that's what I, is a tension, you know, for Burkean conservatives right now. But clearly more of the danger in the short term has come on the side of the establishment. And there don't seem to be, you know, Sanders, for, for all that he is personally very popular, it doesn't seem like democratic socialism as a label has really taken off. Right. And even democratic socialism is pretty mild compared to, you know, um, well, certainly to Bolshevism, but even to, uh, you know, the harder forms of socialism. He's not a Chavista, for example. So um, in that sense, we're not at the point of danger yet. We're not at the threshold. And similarly with Trump, uh, even though uh, the vulgarity and uh, occasional outbursts of violence uh, in his uh, rallies are... Uh, are repellent. Um, I, I think that you know, talk about it as a proto-fascist movement is, is totally out of line and is exaggerated. So um, we're not there yet. But simply saying we're not there yet doesn't mean that um, you know, if you look down the hill and you see where things could roll, that you're not getting a little worried. Well, how would you? I, I'm, I'm intrigued by by your argument that um, claims that Trumpism is a form of proto-fascism is are, are just completely out of bounds. How would you reply to some of those arguments? Uh, just that they're massively exaggerated. Uh, you know, in order to have proto-fascism, you would have to have a stronger leadership cult. I think it would have to have uh, a quasi-military, either, either you know, an element of uh, military mystique or paramilitarism to it that you don't see with Trump. Uh, and I really don't expect you're going to see either. And um, it's clear to me that most of Trump's, uh, you know, voters are not people who are looking for an, you know, Il Duce or something like that. They are just people who are sick of Clintons and Bushes. Okay. Um, so I, I, it, just, it, it just seems like it, it's melodramatic and it's, um, it, it's doing a disservice as well because it, it allows uh, people on the left and on the right, you know, who are closer to the establishment, just to dismiss the movement and say, well, what's happening is, you know, um, just so awful that we, can, we don't have to take it seriously or we can take it seriously only as an evil threat. Whereas they should be actually looking at um, the legitimate complaints that voters have and saying, how can we answer these in a way that doesn't throw civility out the window, that doesn't throw, um, you know, sort of the um, stability out the window, right? Uh, so Trump, I don't think is, I think he's, he's more of a Berlusconi than he is a Mussolini. So let's say there's, if we can imagine just in the general, the two possible victories, either for Clinton or Trump, how, what... How would you position the American conservative in response to each of those? Well, the uh, magazine is a 501c3 nonprofit, so it wouldn't be doing any endorsement of oh, anyone. Oh, of course, right. right. Uh, you know, but even uh, in practical terms, I think there's um, ambivalence. On the one hand, 
we have uh, plenty of contributors who are excited by the Trump phenomenon in the sense that, it, uh, you know, Trump does seem to be throwing out, uh, you know, some of the more neoconservative elements that we've had problems with for, uh, for many, many years. In that sense, you know, Trump seems, uh, you know, encouraging. There's also uh, the fact that, you know, Clinton really is the antithesis of the American conservatives' uh, style of conservatism. Sure. You know, even where um, other conservatives might say, well, she's not... Um, you know, so bad she's, you know, in favor of, uh, you know, uh, TPP and TTIP, these massive trade agreements, for example. Or she was until the campaign. She's just changed her view on that. But, uh, but clearly, I mean, you know, her husband's the guy who gave us NAFTA. That's, that's their economic program. Uh, and in foreign policy, she's also, you know, pretty hawkish for a Democrat. Um, so straight down the line, she is ant antithetical to us. Nevertheless, I think there are, uh, we do have contributors who simply say that there's too much risk involved with Trump and there's too much, um, you know, amateurism. Mm -hmm. And so even if Clinton is awful, um, better to be awful but have someone who's competent in office than to have someone who is um, kind of wild and you have no idea where he's going to wind up. So before we move forward, let's get even more explicit about some of the political differences we've been discussing. You say Clinton is antithetical to the stance of the American conservative, uh, but what what is that stance particularly? Perhaps we can get at it this way. Uh, how would you define conservatism broadly as opposed to Clinton's liberalism? Well, my uh, short answer definition of conservatism, which is not very satisfactory, but I think it's kind of correct, is it's a defense of normality. It's a defense of, uh, you know, your civilization, uh, your form of government, and your way of life as they exist. As they exist uh, doesn't mean they're perfect, uh, you know, uh, and conservatism can always find um, standards for improvement uh, by looking uh, to the past, and not only looking to the past as a static thing. I think this is a mistake my libertarian friends, for example, make when they misunderstand where conservatives and especially traditionalist conservatives are coming from. They think, well, um, it just means doing robotically whatever was done in the past. Or if you have a, uh, a flawed institution in the present, you have to um, keep doing it the same way you've always done simply because that's tradition, that's habit, and that's conservatism. It's not true. A tradition is a living thing. It's a trajectory. And it does, um, you know, its foundations lead to growth. Uh, I mean, that's fundamentally, uh, conservatism is like tending a garden. You know, um, it's not simply saying, well, we're going to um, wrap our plants in plastic and say that, uh, you know, if we get rid of uh, the living plants and replace them with, um, uh, you know, sort of sunflowers made of plastic and things like that, that that's a garden. It's not. A garden is a matter of tending a living thing. It's a matter of keeping uh, the substance of uh, your civilization going. And, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't, uh, conservatism really shouldn't lend itself to uh, a, dis a definition that's too much more detailed and precise than that precisely because conservatism needs to address changing circumstances. Maybe the plants are getting too much water during a rainstorm. Maybe there's uh, you know, a drought, which is a different problem. Maybe there's a problem with uh, a blight or, um, or with uh, insect infestation. There could be any number of things when it comes to tending a garden. Um, you can't reduce it to a cookbook. And I think one of the most insightful conservatives, uh, someone I turn to as a philosophical uh, lodestar, is uh, Michael Oakeshott. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's very philosophical, but I think it's correct, and I think it's, um, it offers guidance. The right, I would say, um, I tend to think of the right as having a more temperamental definition and a definition also that is um, always in contrast with the left. So um, if, you, if you identify yourself as being very strongly on the right, I think you fall into a temptation simply to say, well, whatever the left is doing, we're going to do the opposite, and that's going to be good. And that, I think, is why Trump is right-wing but not conservative. 
So Trump clearly hates a lot of the things that you see on the social justice left, for example, with political correctness. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the position he comes to, which is extremely vulgar and you know sort of uh, just uh, you know sort of indecent, is conservative. It's clearly not, but it's but it is right wing. The right, I think, also. Um, in, in uh, combating the left, the right has a, um, uh, a sense of uh, strength attached to it. I think one of the criticisms people can sometimes make of conservatism is that it becomes too philosophical, too aesthetic, and too divorced from sort of the visceral concerns that drive politics. Uh, the right, on the other hand, I think is very much about that kind of visceral appeal. And again, you see that with, uh, with Trump. Um, so some degree of that uh, sort of thumos, right, um, that sort of spiritedness is necessary for politics, and conservatives do have to have an element of that. Um, so that's where conservatism and the right start to interact a little bit. And of course, also conservatism is critical of the left, so it, there's that shared ground as well. Um, but you can always go too far, and you can always become too much about spiritedness and too much about um, nationalism, basically, mm -hmm. is clearly one of the manifestations of uh, a certain kind of right-wingedness that is nonetheless problematic with conservatism. Conservatism and nationalism have some shared ground, but also have you know, some very serious disagreements. The left believes that uh, you can throw away uh, the existing foundations of society and come up with better ones. I think that is the fundamental essence of the left. Uh, and sometimes they want to do it more gradually, sometimes they want to do it immediately and in a revolutionary fashion. But in both senses, um, the left has this um, uh, rationalistic conceit, this idea that um, you know, first of all, they have a presentist conceit. They believe that we today have uh, acquired perfect moral knowledge, and people in the past uh, don't really have anything to teach us. They were benighted, they were ignorant. Today we have um, perfect knowledge, and it's probably not going to be really improved upon either. Um, but we can, you know, to the extent there will be any improvements whatsoever, we can rationally predict what those improvements will be. You certainly see that in Marx. Marx is convinced that, you know, even though he believes in this historical evolution, he also thinks that, you know, he has reached a point where he knows what the end of history is going to look like. This idea that you can create societies anew from blueprints, you know, to the extent that it's carried out only in a sort of piecemeal fashion or slowly, it doesn't always lead us into immediate, uh, you know, crises. But, um, but it is fundamentally wrong. That's simply, you know, human beings, and I think uh, Burke, you know, is, is very wise on this uh, point. Uh, you know, the individual is foolish, the species is wise, that um, uh, this idea that one man or a collection of individuals is going to come together and rationally map out, whether it's an economy, whether it's a system of justice, whether it's uh, anything, um, you, you can't plan humanity like that, and you can't plan the uh, sort of uh, connections of love that actually sustain a civilization, a culture, and a nation. Uh, so that's why I'm very critical of the left. I think it comes down to something uh, that, first of all, doesn't have adequate love for um, you know, the society that we have um, inherited and for that patrimony of ours. And second of all, it has a rationalistic conceit um, which is going to be extremely destructive. And sometimes that rationalism takes forms which may look very irrational. I mean, certainly the left as well as the right does have a sense of uh, spiritedness attached to it as well. Um, this sense of visceral hatred of injustice, which then carries over to this idea that you can create a perfect system of justice uh, in response. Um, but that whole um, sort of excessive confidence in, in, in humanity's uh, ability to improve itself through will and through rational effort and so forth, um, that, I think, is the essence of the left, and I think it's incompatible with conservatism in the long run. Okay, so in, in your view, what can the American conservative teach, or what does it have to say to the left and the right, respectively? I think it teaches the right to be self-critical and not simply to be so engaged in fighting the left 
that it loses sight of uh, the actual way of life and uh, the our civilization not just as an abstraction, not just as a uh, uh, you know a formula that we can recite, a credo, but as a, a lived tradition and an experience. Uh, that's one thing I think the American conservative has to try to teach the right, um, and also what it uh, what it does in response to the left. Was that the other side? Um, what it. Uh, on the one hand, I think we can show the left that um, you know we're not just saying that um, whatever reforms the left might be interested in, whether it's criminal justice reform or uh, whether it's a foreign policy that is a little bit more uh, you know uh, sensitive to the collateral damage that we cause in other countries. On those particular issues, I think we can show the left um, that you know conservatives coming from very different foundations can nevertheless have uh, a degree of policy agreement. Um, but at the same time, I think we can also show them over time that. Our foundations are not sort of incidental to the policies we, we embrace, that in fact um, our foundations we think are, are much sounder uh, than the ones that the left has for coming to its, uh, its views. And it, you know, in, in some ways I, I've drawn a, a sharp distinction between uh, the rationalistic and presentist uh, conceits of the left and uh, conservatism, and I think that, 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 um, that gulf is there. But also I think there are members of the left who are actually more conservative in their hearts uh, than they realize. So even if they nominally um, give assent to a, uh, you know, uh, a very grandiose uh, idea of restructuring society, at least in, in the ideal, that in practice they really don't uh, go as extreme as uh, their ideology might suggest. And that I think is, is something we would kind of call their attention to. We would say, look in the mirror and see the extent to which you are actually the inheritor of a tradition and you try to uphold that tradition and, um, and you, you are not going to improve on it quite as much as you think you are. And as a result, you need to think more about preserving uh, your roots and not so much about uh, trying to have uh, sort of the branches and the flowers without the roots and the, uh, the stems. Mm -hmm. I have some questions for you about yourself, but that, that does remind me. I was having a conversation with some, I think some people, who, they're, 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 they're intellectual, they keep up with politics, but they don't necessarily understand the dynamics of sort of intra-conservative uh -huh. debate. Um, and a few of them had read Yuval Levin's recent book, uh, The Great Debate, um, in which he claims that that um, Burke is the root of contemporary conservatism and Thomas Paine the root of contemporary progressivism. And you, you, your definition of the left it falls very much in line with this idea that the left is, at its core, this political idea or ideology that thinks that you can just sort of start anew and look to the future for some sort of achieving a better kind of human and that Burke's uh, conservatism is much more sort of plodding and much more sort of slowly moving forward. Uh, but the question that a lot of these, these people had, and I've been wondering it too, is can, can you identify any Burkean conservatives currently working in politics or are most politicians forced to be on the right according to your definition of on the right? That's a great question. Um... I would have to think carefully because no name immediately jumps to mind, and even a lot of the uh, politicians I've you know liked and you know have a degree of uh, sort of personal support for, it's because they and some of them you know are, are very nice individuals. They're not uh, they don't have that Trumpian sort of sure. uh, uh, nastiness to them. Uh, but nevertheless, still my my appreciation for them tends to be in the negative that they are stopping bad policies. Um, I don't see um, you know too many sort of creative Burkeans on the scene right now. And uh, it seems to me one of the mistakes that a lot of reform conservatives have made is that they are in too much of a hurry to find someone like that. And as a result, um, you know, I think embracing Marco Rubio is a mistake. And um, I, I, I see there's very few um, sort of um, uh, promising figures out there. One I will mention, however, and I think um, this is something that reform conservatives have identified. It's something that we've identified. 
one doesn't want to put the weight of the world on his shoulders, but clearly what he's doing is the right beginning to things, and that's Mike Lee. Mm. Uh, Mike Lee has taken a very serious interest in uh, policy development. He's someone who has you know, a strict constitutionalist view of government power, but who also understands the power of community. And uh, Utah represents a very interesting case study in how um, community has been able to supply goods that, and, you know, and state-level government, too, have been able to supply goods without depending on the federal government for everything. Um, so Lee is someone I would point to as perhaps um, the most Burkean uh, person uh, you know, in the U.S. Congress right now, um, and certainly the most promising uh, you know, sort of Burkean character, I think. And um, I'd like to see many more people of that temperament and of that uh, caliber and seriousness uh, in, in office. In this political situation, what do you think the prospects are of, of getting more sort of Burkeans of Mike Lee's sort on con or in Congress? I think they're actually pretty good. And um, again, this kind of goes back to uh, whether Trump is um, a crisis or an opportunity. I think the promising thing here is that the establishment, which... The establishment was very effective at keeping out alternatives and at, you know, keeping things... On the one hand, there was kind of a lid on things, there was a degree of stability, but there was also a degree of uh, sort of decay and um, long-term loss of uh, civilizational vitality, whether that's in economics or whether it's in our grand strategy and foreign policy or whether it's in uh, the, sort of the spiritual and cultural levels of the country. So slow death was what the establishment represented. Trump himself is, you know, uh, a very uh, uproarious uh, response to that. But I think there are, um, I mean, I see among young people, for example, among millennials, among um, uh, some of the young uh, journalists and writers, I see a lot of reflection and I see a lot of um, sense that we need to get beyond the politics of Bush and Clinton. And, uh, but, they're, but they're not Trumpians either. I mean, Trump actually has very, very bad numbers among young people. Uh, it's one of his worst uh, performing categories, and he's got a lot of bad performing categories. Sanders, unfortunately, is very popular with young people right now, but I think that's kind of transient. I think that if you had a real Burkean uh, alternative, if you had uh, someone with uh, sort of the Mike Lee um, persona, um, but who was um, you know, sort of engaged on campuses, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's difficult because on the one hand, you don't want Lee to run for president because running for president just destroys whatever uh, legislative and um, uh, you know, I mean, Burke himself was a legislator. It's, it's important to have that legislative character. You don't want to be all about winning elections and winning the, the presidency. And that's one of the, the things that happened to Rand Paul. Rand Paul was very promising at the start. I think he's going to be a very, very good senator as he continues. But he tried to run for president too early. And as a result, he wound up uh, devising a very uh, muddled message. And he didn't get the kind of support on campuses that his father Ron Paul had done with a more philosophically consistent message. But I think you could have a, a, a Burkean conservative approaching uh, college students the way that uh, Sanders approaches them now, and it would actually be extremely popular and it would actually take off. But there's no one in a position to do that just yet. And that's okay. It takes time. A Burkean is nothing if not patient. So yeah, so you, we've been talking about college students. You yourself were head of college Republicans at Washington University at St. Louis. Is that where you came into sort of political consciousness? No, I had been uh, interested in politics going back uh, even to middle school, uh, the end of my middle school, beginning of high school. And um, that was the early 1990s. I can probably pinpoint 1991 as you know, the year of uh, getting interested in politics. That was the year I turned 13. Part of it was youthful rebellion in the sense that uh, you know, the town I was living in was pretty Republican, but I was in school, and schools you know, generally have a, a kind of left-of-center tilt. So uh, myself and some of my friends in middle school and in high school, we saw um, embracing the right and embracing conservatism, not always the same thing, of course, as being uh, a way to kind of... Um, yeah, rebel against our teachers and rebel against uh, the kind of conformist culture that you get among 
high school students were just going along with um, sort of conventional left-wing pieties. So, and that was the early 90s, which was an interesting kind of civil war period on the right. Um, you know, conservatives have been very dis disappointed with uh, George H.W. Bush. Um, so there was a big question. Would conservatives, would they embrace uh, Jack Kemp as the future? Would they embrace um, Pat Buchanan? Uh, and what they wound up doing, of course, was sort of uh, not answering the question by just embracing Bob Dole, who represented continuity more than uh, a sort of um, new vision of anything. So that was an interesting time to be uh, a conservative and to start thinking through some of these fundamental questions. Rush Limbaugh was becoming popular. I listened to some of Rush Limbaugh, but I listened to a lot of... Um, I listened to G. Gordon Liddy more often because he was actually more fun. <laughs> Watergate burglar and all that. And also I was subscribing to National Review back in the early 90s, and I think uh, John O'Sullivan was a great editor for that magazine. And O'Sullivan brought together a lot of different perspectives there. Uh, you could find paleoconservatives, you could find uh, uh, neoconservatives, uh, you could find libertarians as well as traditionalists. So National Review had had a very good um, experience up until then, and uh, which was revived somewhat under O'Sullivan, of looking at these different uh, conservative um, uh, groups and uh, trying to uh, mediate between them, mm -hmm. figure out what was best in everyone. And uh, so it was a very dynamic time intellectually to become interested in conservatism. Was there ever a moment when you decided to sort of move away from movement conservatism and ally yourself with this form of independent conservatism that you've been talking about? Yeah, there was, um, which was that I decided I was a Buchananite very early on. Um, I liked Buchanan in the early 90s, first of all, because uh, he drew a very clear moral line. It was very clear that, you know, his social conservatism was the foundation of his conservatism, which was not the case with uh, George H.W. Bush or Bob Dole. And, you know, in, in retrospect, perhaps I didn't give enough credit to, to Bush and Dole on some of these things. Um, but uh, Buchanan really, you know, he was a very clear, um, uh, he planted his flag in the ground and you could rally around it. And over time, as I explored Buchanan's other issues, uh, whether it was immigration or economics or foreign policy, I came to see that there was an interesting story that had been overlooked not only by the left, but also by the establishment right, in terms of um, you know, conservatives who had been skeptical of an expansionist foreign policy. With regard to immigration, it was clear that um, grassroots conservatives and you know, a great many conservatives throughout uh, our tradition had been you know, somewhat skeptical of uh, large-scale immigration, and that this view was being um, sort of crowded out by people who were influential on the inside and wanted more outreach to minorities and more, um, more, more outreach to new immigrants, I should say, which is, which is a fine thing. And actually, you know, uh, talking about a pendulum here, uh, I've come to see that you know, some of the flaws of the very hard-line uh, restrictionist uh, immigration uh, position but I do think that um, the, it was clear to me, even back in the 90s, early 90s, that uh, the mainstream conservative movement was making a mistake by ignoring the concerns about immigration that uh, the hard right had. And um, anyway, so that's how I got started there. So you studied classics as an undergraduate. How did your studies affect your political outlook? You know, I, I, in some ways they, they affected it less than you might think, but in a way that's a good thing, that foundational education and the uh, liberal learning of the classics is not meant to be turned into just a, uh, you know, a prop for a political position, that it really is a foundation as a human being rather than as a political actor. So certainly, you know, um, being able to reflect on uh, the very different constitutional arrangements of the classical world relative to ours, looking at, uh, you know, the persistent problems uh, in classical politics, whether it was uh, divisions between the few and the many, the rich and the poor, uh, divisions between, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, 
commercial republics and more uh, you know, restrictive uh, characters, as in Sparta. I think that's been interesting to you know as a, a way of looking at, on the one hand, distancing oneself from today's controversies, but at the same time also seeing that there's something um, essential about politics which both the classical world and the modern world have been trying to deal with. And that uh, this idea um, that you ever have, have it easy, that you, know, you have a constitution that doesn't have tensions and uh, uh, factions within it, is, is really a myth. And that you actually do need to have, there always has to be some accommodation in politics. There always has to be a sense of creating a consensus out of elements which don't necessarily cohere um, automatically. Well, Dan, we've taken plenty of your time. Thanks very much for talking. Oh, thank you. you. I've enjoyed this a great deal. That was my conversation with Daniel McCarthy at the American Conservative. To learn more about Mr. McCarthy and his work, visit theamericanconservative.com. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Gleaves Whitney is director of the center and producer of this podcast. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground. <laughs>